Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Hey, good morning. It's great to be with you all. My name is Stephen Jones, and I'm the college pastor here at Candeo, and it's good to be with you. So apparently Jake last week uh, reduced me to family and sports as far as my illustrations go. So I'll just get those two out of the way right now. Uh, Back-to-back state champions, Southeast Polk Rams, Friday night in the Dome. Let's go! Beat Valley. Can we all cheer for that at least? Valley. Okay, there we go. We got got something there. Um, Abu Sama rushed 359 yards and six touchdowns. That is an all-class state record, and he is a verbal commit to Iowa State. And please, Matt Campbell, do everything you can to keep that verbal commit. Like, I, I was like watching, I'm like getting nervous. I'm like, I am pretty sure Alabama, Nick Saban's probably watching this Southeast Polk game right now on the IHSNN whatever app. Like he's probably watching it and he's going to get Abu Samu and that would be terrible. But Southeast Polk, back-to-back state champs, that's great. Uh, now for the family one. We're traveling this week for Thanksgiving, so we set up Christmas stuff. So we have just lots of warm feelings at our house right now. Uh, Christmas tree. I went and just sat by the Christmas tree this morning. You know, my heart is full. It's warm. So I'm coming with all the warmth of Christmas today as we prepare for Thanksgiving. Um, If you have a Bible, Daniel 11 and 12 are where we are at this morning. And we are wrapping up our study through the book of Daniel. We've been in it uh, this entire fall, and it has been an incredible study to go through together. And we all know uh, how important final words are, right? Farewell speeches, uh, closing statements, the last speech, farewell addresses. We lean in a little bit more. We listen a a little bit closer when it's somebody's last words. Why? Because usually in kind of final statements, concluding remarks, you summarize your main point, right? You say, here is the purpose, here is the main takeaway that I want you to have from this writing, from this speech, from this whatever. It summarizes the main point, and Daniel is no different. We're coming to the conclusion of this book in these final two chapters, and he's going to say, this is my main point, and it's not going to be a surprise, We've been looking at it at this beautiful graphic that Josie made all semester, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. That is the conclusion of the book. We've been seeing it so often this whole semester, and so in many ways this morning is going to be somewhat of a review of the whole semester. But my prayer is that, that as we open these chapters, that this reality that kingdoms fall, kingdoms rise, would be cemented into the culture of our church for the rest of time. That we would actually be people that know that every earthly kingdom that we set up, whether that be an actual nation or an organization, institution, or even the kingdom of my own life or my own family, all of that rises and falls, but there's only one kingdom that's forever. There's only one kingdom that never ends. And so that's where we're going this morning. What should our lives look like in light of that truth? Right? And that's the question, what kingdom are you living for? So if you have a Bible, like I said, chapter 11, I'm going to read the whole thing, uh, and it will probably take about five minutes to get through chapter 11. I'll pause a few times throughout it. Uh, I told Cody and the kind of worship team this morning, a third of my sermon is going to be reading scripture, which means a third of it's going to be perfect. So here we are. 
All right, chapter 11. So this chapter continues the vision that started in chapter 10. This is the third year of Cyrus, which means that the first wave of exiles have returned from Babylon to Jerusalem at this point, and Daniel is still in Babylon in his 80s, and he hears this vision from Gabriel. Verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and protect him. Now I will tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior king will arise. He will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But as soon as he is established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others besides them. Right there, the pattern is established already in chapter 11. A kingdom's gonna rise, Alexander the Great of Greece, and it's gonna fall. So that's the pattern already established. And as we continue, it's, that pattern is just gonna keep going. Look at verse five. The kingdom of the south will grow powerful, but one of his commanders will grow more powerful and will rule a kingdom greater than his. After some years, they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal the agreement. She will not retain power and his strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father and the one who supported her during those times. In the place of the king of the south, one from her family will rise up, come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will take action against them in triumph. He will take even their gods captive to Egypt with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For some years he will stay away from the king of the north who will enter the kingdom of the king of the south and return to his land. Take note of a few repeating words at this point. Words like power, strength, Verse 10, his sons will mobilize for war and assemble a large number of armed forces. They will advance, sweeping through a flood and will again wage war as far as his fortress. Infuriated, the king of the south will march out to fight the king of the north, who will raise a large army, and, but they will be handed over to his enemy. When the army is carried off, he will become arrogant and cause tens of thousands to fall but he will not triumph. The king of the north will again raise a multitude larger than the first. After some years, he will advance with a great army and many supplies. In those times, many will rise up against the, the king of the south. Violent ones among your own people will assert themselves to fulfill a vision, but they will fail. Then the king of the north will come, build up a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city. The forces of the south will not stand. Even their select troops will not be able to resist. The king of the north who comes against him will do whatever he wants and no one can oppose him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land with total destruction in his hand. He will resolve to come with the force of the whole kingdom and will reach an agreement with him. He will give him a daughter in marriage to destroy it, but she will not stand with him or support him. Then he will turn his attention to the coasts and islands and capture many. But a commander will put an end to his taunting. Instead, he will turn his taunts against him. 
He will turn his attention back to the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and be no more. Once again, this pattern continues. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Right, we notice some of those patterns. A new leader would emerge, assemble a large army, take control through power, use strategic alliances. My daughter's gonna marry this guy to strengthen their kingdom, but what would happen? And be no more. Rise, power, large army, but eventually would be no more. Look at verse 20. In his place, one will arise who will send out a tax collector for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days, he will be broken, though not in anger or in battle. So we have this last kingdom end. Right after that, you have another kingdom pop up. But just for a brief moment, as soon as you hear of it, it's gone. Verse 21, in his place, a despised person will arise. Royal honors will not be given to him, but he will come during a time of peace and seize the kingdom by intrigue. A flood of forces will be swept away before him. They will be broken as well as the covenant prince. After an alliance is made with him, he will act deceitfully. He will rise to power with a small nation during a time of peace. He will come into the richest parts of the province and do what his fathers and predecessors never did. He will lavish plunder, loot, and wealth on his followers. And he will make plans against fortified cities, but only for a time. It's a great line, but only for a time. We've seen it. That is the reality of every human kingdom, only for a time. Verse 25, with a large army, he will stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will prepare for battle with an extremely large and powerful army, but he will not succeed because plots will be made against him. Those who eat his provisions will destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall slain. The two kings whose hearts are bent on evil will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For still the end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his land with the great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action, then return to his own land. What do we see here? This kingdom isn't started with power initially. It started with intrigue, with political charisma. And again, alliances are made, but they're deceitful alliances, large armies, plundering, looting. Kings are gathering extremely large and powerful armies, great wealth. Yet the end will come at the appointed time. What is God showing Daniel in this prophecy? Hey, you're going to see kingdoms rise. You're going to see kingdoms fall. But through it all, I am in absolute control. Sovereign. 29 continues with that same phrase, at the appointed time. Look there. At the appointed time, he will come again to the south. But this time will not be like the first. Ships of Kittim will come against him and be intimidated. He will withdraw. Then he will rage against the holy covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandoned the holy covenant. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and take action. 
Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and flame, and they will be captured and plundered for a time. When they fall, they will be helped by some, but many others will join them insincerely. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Then the king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God. And he will say outrageous things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. Because what has been decreed will be accomplished. He will not show regard for the gods of his ancestors, the God desired by women, or for any other God. Because he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor a God of fortresses. A God his ancestors did not know with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as reward. Commentators point out that this section is talking about the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes. This was one of the most evil, ungodly rulers during this time, and he made life particularly difficult for the Jews. He set up an idol in the holy place of the temple to desecrate it. And what was the response of the people of this time? What was it to be? We'll look back at verse 32. The people who know their God will be strong and take action. Over and over again, we're seeing that phrase, like I said, at the appointed time. Even during a rule as terrible as Antiochus Epiphanes is not outside of the control of God. In fact, verse 35, what does God say he's actually even doing in the midst of this rule? He's using it to refine, purify, and cleanse his people. God is going to sovereignly use this wicked rule of Antiochus Epiphanes to purify his own people. So what are they to do? They're to have a resolve, knowing that kingdoms rise and fall, even a kingdom like Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, that one will come, that one will go. And that's exactly what happened to him. Look at verse 30, 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, but the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. He will invade countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land and many will fall, but these will escape from his power, Edom, Moab, and the prominent peoples of the Ammonites. He will extend his power against countries and not even the land of Egypt will escape. He will get control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the riches of Egypt's. The Libyans and Cushites will also be in submission, but reports from the east and the north will terrify him. And he will go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. He will pitch his tent in in royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain. But he will meet his end with no one to help him. As great of a kingdom as Antiochus Epiphanes was building. Only for a time. He would meet his end with no one to help him. That is the pattern of every human kingdom. Kingdoms will rise, kingdoms will fall. 
Every human kingdom is only for a time. That is the message that God wanted to get across to Daniel. And that is the message that Daniel wants to shape us for a millennia. For the next 500 years, the Jews would experience multiple human kingdoms. And overall, most of the kingdoms they'd experience would make life hard for them. And yet the reality was that every moment God was completely in control. God was raising some, lowering others. Well, it looked like human kingdoms were established by power and cunning and alliances and wealth. It was God behind it all. Directing the course of human history. What then is the hope for God's people in the midst of this? Right? Because we can't always see exactly what God is doing behind the scenes like that. Where do we find hope in the midst of that? Well, look at how chapter 12 begins. In the midst of kingdoms rising and falling, in the midst of hardship for God's people, what is the anchor that they are to anchor their hope to? Verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people, will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That is the hope in the midst of all of the course of human history, in the midst of all these kingdoms rising and falling, when things are hard for the people of God, that is their hope. That though earthly kingdoms are only for a time, there is a kingdom that has no end. There is a kingdom that is forever. And God will bring that kingdom about in his time. Did you catch that in verse 1? Again, we saw that it started at that time. Well, actually, there are four mentions of time just in verse 1. At that time, there will be a time until that time, at that time again. Gabriel is hammering this in for Daniel. God's timing you can trust. God is in absolute control. There is nothing you have ever experienced that is outside of the timing of God. There's no experience this week that God was surprised about. There's no experience that you encounter in this life that God didn't sovereignly ordain that was outside the appointed time of God. Regardless of what it looks like around us, God is in absolute control. Now, what was going to happen at this appointed time? Well, verse 1, there would be distress. Again, this would be a time initially that was hard for God's people. But what was the promise? All who are found in the book will escape. What is God doing? God is protecting his people. The book of life appears throughout Scripture. We see it in Revelation in the end. We see it all, all throughout Scripture, this idea that there is a book with names, the names of God's people written in it. It shows that God both possesses you and that your eternity is secure in him. So in the midst of all these rising and falling kingdoms, God is preserving his people. He's written their names in the book 
And he is going to provide protection and an escape from the distress of this life. And what's that escape? We'll look at verse 2. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. This is actually the clearest Old Testament reference to the afterlife that we have about the bodily eternal resurrection that we will experience. And this is the hope of God's people being raised to a life and an eternal kingdom that has no end. What gives us hope as we experience the rising and falling of kingdoms? It's the eternal kingdom of God. The unshakable hope that even the greatest threat that a kingdom of this earth can have against us, death itself, is no match for the power of God. God is more powerful than death, and those whose names are in the book of life will be resurrected to eternal life. Every human kingdom is only for a time, yet God's kingdom is eternal, and his grasp on you is unshakable. Now, there's also a challenge in verse 2. Right? It is not only those whose names are written in the book of life that are raised. I don't know if you actually know this or have thought about this much, but actually every single human will be awakened after death. Every single person will have an afterlife. But the destination of that afterlife is not always eternal life. What was the second part of verse 2? The earth will awake, some to eternal life, some to disgrace and eternal contempt. This is a sobering reality of God's judgment. That actually living for a kingdom of this earth is not just an issue of preference, but an issue of rebellion. Not being in the kingdom of God, not having your name in the book of life isn't just about the blessings you experience or preference. It's, it's an issue of rebellion against God. The question we're wrestling with this morning is what kingdom are you living for? The kingdoms of this world. All those kingdoms are only for a time. And all those kingdoms end in the same place. Disgrace and eternal contempt. This is an issue of citizenship. With God, you can't have dual citizenship. You can't both be a citizen of a kingdom of this world and a citizen of heaven. You can't have your name written in both books. Now, this doesn't mean we all need to renounce our American citizenship or we can't cheer for America in the World Cup. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that at a heart level, at an identity level, where is your true citizenship? Is your name in God's book? Are you a part of his people? Because if not, there is a reality that there will be a day when you die and you will be awakened, but not to eternal life, but to eternal disgrace and contempt to an eternity separated from God and eternal judgment in hell. So how do we change our citizenship? Well, the reality is the only that way that we could experience the resurrected life is if there was another who was resurrected first. Our resurrection could only happen is if, if Christ rose from the dead. 
He rose, defeated sin and death. He paid the penalty so that we could be saved from our sins. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is how our citizenship has changed. A confession that Jesus is my Lord, not a Lord of this earthly kingdom, but Jesus is. And a belief in the heart that God raised him from the dead. And what is the promise to those of us who have made that confession and made that belief? Verse 3, those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. An eternity with God, glorified through his grace to shine with joy and life as we dwell in his presence forever. Jesus is the only place where hope is found. The reality is that every single person will rise someday. Every person you see, every person you interact with and encounter will face an eternity. And those who have put their faith in Christ will shine like stars forever. Now, how does Daniel end his book? Look at verse four, and I'll read to the end. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Many will roam about and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and two others were standing there, one on this bank of the river and one on the other. One of them said to the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river, how long until the end of these wondrous things? Then I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river. He raised both his hands towards heaven and swore by him who lives eternally that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people is shattered, all these things will be completed. I heard but did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? He said, go on your way, Daniel, for the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Happy is the one who waits for and reaches 1,335 days. But as for you, go on your way to the end. You will rest, and then you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance at the end of days. Okay, a couple points here. First, why was Daniel supposed to keep these words secret? Right? It's like, okay, one, we're reading it out loud. Like, are we, should we be reading this? Like, how did we find out, Daniel? Well, most commentators think that what the emphasis there was that the primary audience of Daniel's prophecy wasn't actually the people who would experience the events that are described in chapter 11, but actually the people who would experience the events of the end times. In other words, the church that people after the coming of Christ, that this was to be an encouragement to us to anchor our faith. Second, Daniel's first question is probably like many of our, our first questions when we kind of come across this stuff. When is all this going to happen, God? When are these wondrous things going to take place? There are several ways to understand all of the time, times, half time, 1,290 days, 1,335 days, um, you're going to be disappointed. Ultimate, I'm going to go really quick through this. Ultimately, commentators say, we don't know. 
but what is clear, what's abundantly clear is that God is telling Daniel to have absolute confidence that God has a plan that he is going to unfold to bring about the salvation of his people. What does the time times have to, I don't know. But what is absolutely clear is that God is in control and is appointed this time. So then what is the response Daniel is to have? What is the response that we are to have to all of this? It's to have a confident hope in God as we wait for his kingdom to be established. To live for the kingdom that will never end. All other kingdoms are only for a time, but not God's. So then what kingdom are you living for? The kingdoms of this earth will rise and fall. That really, I believe, is the message of this book to our church. That every kingdom here on earth, country, organization, institution, project, the kingdom of your life, your family, the goals, the values that that you have that all have human origin, all of those only for a time. So what kingdom are you living for? As we come to the end of this book, I genuinely want to ask you, how do you need to respond to what we've seen in our study? How does your life need to be shaped by that reality? Any kingdom you live for, worship, idolize in this life, is only going to be for a time and will be gone at some point. There is only one eternal kingdom. What area of your life is still not aligned to that truth? How would your life change if you started living for God's kingdom and not your own? For God's kingdom and not some other kingdom here on earth? In many ways, we've studied the book of Daniel and seen all the implications of this truth. Maybe your life needs to reflect what we saw in Daniel 1, to be a faithful presence. That as you realize that that there is only one eternal kingdom, that you would actually not withdraw from this Uh, culture, and you want to assimilate with this culture, but you would live as a faithful presence, celebrating what can be redeemed, but challenging what goes against the kingdom of God. Maybe you need to have an unshakable confidence and trust like we saw in Daniel 2 or Daniel 7, that God is in complete control of human history, that nothing ever happens outside of his sovereign hand. Courage, Daniel 3, to not bow down to the idols of this culture. That you'd actually see my citizenship is in heaven. So even if you threaten me, Nebuchadnezzar, with death, that threat is no more scary to me than a night's sleep. Humility, Daniel 4 and 5, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. When you live for your own kingdom, you'll say, by my power and for my glory. But when you live for God's kingdom, what will you say? Only by his power and all all for his glory. You won't be marked by the arrogance of Belshazzar, knowing that God holds your life breath and the entire course of your life in his hands. Integrity, Daniel 6. That as you live for God's kingdom and not the kingdoms of this earth, that your life would actually be distinct from the culture around you. That you would be above reproach. That the greatest accusation they could make against you is he prays too much. 
Prayer from Daniel 9. Knowing that God is sovereign and we are dependent on him. Prayer that's fueled because you know that God with pinpoint accuracy is going to unfold his plan of salvation and his exact timing. Those are just some examples that come to mind. But how does your life need to reflect what we've seen in this book? If you were living for God's kingdom, what area of your life is still not in line, aligned with that truth? The only kingdom that won't be only for a time is God's. Um, this weekend was particularly heavy for me. And in many ways, reminded me in, in a very sober way that this is true. On Friday... I officiated my wife's aunt's funeral. And she was 66, made it one year past 65, and a few months ago was diagnosed with plasma cell leukemia. And it rapidly took over and she died. And she thought, you know, I have years and decades to enjoy time with my grandkids and life and all of that. So I officiated that funeral and then we went back to my in-law's house to spend time together as a family. And a few hours after that funeral, I got a phone call uh, from one of our student leaders, that on Friday that she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer as a 20-year-old. And she said, you know, I went in, I had this lump on my throat beforehand. I just was joking that my, I'm 20, mom, my esophagus must just be twisted. And uh, she said, it's cancer. And thankfully, her situation is very hopeful right now. And they think that it's very treatable. But those aren't words that you usually hear together, 20 and cancer. You see, the kingdoms of this earth deceive us and cover like our eyes with this illusion, this false illusion that we are going to be here forever. That life isn't short, but it is. Any kingdom here on this earth comes and goes. So we were driving around last night as a family, and my kids were asking a lot of questions again about the funeral and Aunt Donna. And Isla said, are, are grandma's pets with Aunt Donna right now? And, you know, just some of those sweet questions that kids will ask. But they also were asking the real questions, like, is Aunt Donna alive? And we're like, yes, Aunt Donna is alive. We knew she was a believer. She had faith in Christ. We know that she's alive. But at some point in the car ride, I got real quiet. Because as thankful as I am that Aunt Donna knows Christ, as thankful as I am that our student leader has a, a, a church family to surround her and that she has the unshakable hope of Christ in her life, I also saw on Tuesday that the eight billionth person in our world was born. That's a lot of people. And that's a lot of people who will be awakened one day, but not awakened to eternal life, but eternal contempt and disgrace. And I was driving last night, and just God was using my five-year-old daughter to just press this point into my heart. What kingdom are you living for, Stephen? So we dropped Natalie off at the errand she had to run. We had a little time, so I drove. I said, let's go past our old house. And we were driving past our old house slowly, and I was just looking at each of our neighbor's houses. Thinking, man, they're going to face an eternity. And I don't know. I haven't had that conversation with that neighbor. 
What kingdom are you living for? Natalie's aunt found out that this kingdom is very, very short. It's very, very temporary. There's only one kingdom that's eternal. And unlike the kingdoms of this earth, how was that kingdom established? It wasn't established through vast power, but the vulnerability of an infant in a manger. It wasn't established by gathering extremely large armies around him, but instead shepherds and fishermen. It wasn't established through a great expression of victory, but instead a criminal's cross. Jesus didn't wear a crown of gold. He wore a crown of thorns. Why? To show you that his kingdom is not about your ability to get your name written in that book, but his ability to show you grace, that through repentance and faith, you can have your name written in that. And it's not just his grace that pulls us into his family, but it's his grace that keeps us in his family. I want my life in our church so badly to reflect the values we've seen in Daniel, but I also know there are so many times when it doesn't. But what is the response to come back again and be blown away by the amazing grace of Christ and to let that fuel us into being people full of faith, living for a kingdom that is eternal? Let's pray. God, would you shatter the hardness of our hearts and the blindness of our eyes that so often keeps us from seeing the reality of the things in this world that are so temporary and keeps us from living for the things that actually matter for an eternity. God, so often our lives are marked by the insecurity of wondering what is going to happen in this life, failing to be anchored to the incredible confidence that we have that there is one kingdom that's eternal. God, I pray that we would be a church that would forever be marked by the book of Daniel. That as we're blown away by the incredible grace that you've shown us, it would fill us with a deep humility. God, that as we see Christ who faced the ultimate lion's den and furnace, it would give us courage to face the lion's dens and furnaces of this life. God, let us be people who live for your kingdom. God, convict us of areas that our lives are not aligned with that reality. And God, I pray that you would receive glory as you work powerfully in our lives and in our church. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.